I'm reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. We gather today, Father, to proclaim, proclaim your majesty. Proclaim who you are and your greatness. And we bow to worship you, to sing your praise, to pray and know that the sovereign God of the universe hears and responds. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your mercy, your grace, the gift of salvation, for sanctification, because you supply the you supply the growth, as Paul tells us. Thank you for your church. We're a sinful people. We pray, Lord, that you forgive our, the sin of jealousy backbiting those things Paul talked to the church at Corinth about that continue on today we pray God that you'd forgive us the sin of racism the sin of gossip and so many others and we know the sins in our own lives because when we look at you we see ourselves we pray you forgive those sins we think of even now in our own lives we need deliverance from. Do that, even now, by the power of your Spirit. Forgive us, Lord. We pray, Father, for our nation today, the nations of the world. The nations of the world where we send out missionaries, preachers and teachers. medical missionaries, agricultural missionaries, people serving around this world, Lord, some in very dangerous places. But strife and sin are everywhere. And we pray, Lord, that even in our own land that you would heal, that you would lift up, raise up godly men and women 
that the divisions, Lord, that can only be healed by you, might be healed. But that you remind us that you're the healer. You can repair a broken nation. Not government, not any one person, not any human, but you. May we turn to you. Come together in prayer and seek your face. Turn from our wicked ways. God, do that in our hearts and our lives. Send revival to our land. Send revival to our church. Because we've gathered here today to hear your word. Thank you. Thank you for your powerful word that we can sing and pray and proclaim. And may your word pierce our hearts and change our lives today for your glory. Speak through our pastor directly to our hearts. Give him strength to declare your truth. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's hard to believe uh, we have made our way to the final chapter of 1 Peter, but we have indeed. And this morning we will look to the first four verses of chapter 5. Peter writes these words. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, we've read the text and you've seen the title already this morning. And so I suspect that you have already surmised that the thrust of our text before us is aimed at elders. And when we look around the room this morning, there are one, two, three, four unless I'm missing somebody, four people in the room that fit that title. And so you may be thinking, Phew, I'm out of I'm out of I'm in the clear this morning. I can just listen along or I can tune out. Before you make that decision, I want to just kind of pull you back from the edge and pull you back in a way that I think Peter would want you to be pulled back this morning. Indeed our text this morning does deal with a profile of what a faithful elder looks like. And it is directed primarily at elders. Peter says in the first verse, I exhort you elders. He is writing specifically to a group of men who are filling the role of elders. And he is going to exhort them particularly. He's going to talk to them about what elder ministry looks like. He's going to talk to them about what is the primary calling of elders. He's going to talk to them about what the characteristics of a godly, faithful elder look like. What does an, a faithful elder's service look like? What are the marks of that? He's going to talk about those things. And those are primarily aimed at elders. But I want to say to you right at the outset here this morning, that is not the only application of this text. For everything that he says about elders really secondarily applies to anyone who is finding themselves in some role of leadership in some slice of the kingdom of God. 
whether it be as an elder or whether it be as a teacher of a small group or whether it be the facilitator of a prayer team, whether it be someone who's leading one of our uh, ministry teams that happens here or somewhere else, anybody who is, is leading some slice of God's people, these principles apply to you. There's nothing that he says here to elders that don't trickle down and apply on every level of leadership really below that. And so this morning, everything that I say that's addressed to elders really can be applied that way in your life. If you find yourself somewhere leading some of God's people in some form, shape, or fashion. There's another way to approach this text if that doesn't apply to you that way. And it's this. If you're a person who's a part of a congregation who perhaps from time to time moves from one city to the next, and you find yourself in that uh, unkind position of searching for a church, how many of you have been in that position where you've been searching for a church? I'm telling you, I, I, I don't envy anybody who's in that position. It's a, it's a challenging position to go to a new town and find a church. I talk to guests here all the time after worship who are moving into Charleston and they're passing through and they've come from a church somewhere and now they're looking for another one. And it's challenging to find a a place that fits where God is calling you to serve and to be fed. And if that ever is a a part of your, your life at some point, and perhaps it will be in ways that you can't imagine now, it's important for you to have a clear understanding of what Peter is communicating in this text. Because wherever you go, whatever church you attend, you're going to find elders that are responsible for leading that particular flock. And you need to understand what a godly elder looks like. You need to understand what a faithful elder looks like. And Peter is going to give it to us by way of contrast of what an ungodly and an unfaithful elder looks like. And as a a person who's a believer who might find themselves at some point walking into a church and trying to assess whether or not this is a place where God has called you to to embed your life, you need to know clearly what a godly, faithful elder looks like and what an ungodly, unfaithful elder looks like so that you can make wise decisions for yourself and for your own family. And so there are multiple ways to approach this text beyond just as elders. And so I lay that out for you at the beginning, uh, understanding that you need to then take that and apply these things as they might see fit in your life. We pray that the Spirit of God will help you in that regard. But Peter comes right out of the chute and says, I exhort the elders among you. Now, we need to talk for just a moment, what, 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 what are elders? In case you may not know what elders are. Who are elders? When we look to the New Testament, uh, we find that there are basically two officers, or offices, if you will, in the New Testament church. You find elders and you find deacons. Um, All throughout the book of Acts, we see elders mentioned a couple of places. Acts chapter 14, uh, verse 23, uh, tells us that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders uh, for them in each church. That's in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And with prayer and fasting, he committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And the New Testament pattern is the apostles went and they planted churches. They got the church up to, to life and to growth and got the church stabilized, and as soon as they could, they rose up men, or raised up men within that congregation, appointed them elders, and entrusted the charge of that congregation to those men. And then the, elder, the apostles uprooted and moved to the next town to plant the next church. And that's a consistent pattern. Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 20, and so on and so forth. And when we find that beyond that, Paul's letters, Paul mentions them multiple times. In Titus 1.5, Paul writes, the reason I left you in Crete to Titus was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and that you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so elders are appointed 
people who are responsible for the care and the leadership of the local congregation in any particular place. James mentions it, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul mentions it again. And here in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter speaks to elders. And we always see this term pop up in the plurality. It doesn't rarely, do we see it ever pop up in the singular? So there's always elders. It's not typically one person who's appointed. It's a, a group of them, at least more than one, to have the S on the end, right? I learned plural early on in my elementary school. And there's, there's a reason for that, why it's wise for congregational leadership to be vested in a group of people rather than a singular individual. I don't think it takes us very long to figure out why that's wise for a church, right? Any singular individual is prone to all the sins that anybody else is prone to. And when you have a singular person who is solely vested with the leadership of a congregation, there is great, great, great possibility of that man falling into sin and wrecking the entire ministry and ruining the testimony of the entire church. When there's a multiplicity of people who are responsible, there's an accountability that they hold one another to. And there's a shared load of leadership, and there are uh, numerous other reasons why a plurality is best as opposed to a, a singularity. So we see elders mentioned in plural, and we see the uh, other names that are used for elders, the, the term pastor, bishop, overseer. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uses all three of those words to describe the same people. He says, uh, at the very beginning, I appeal to you as a fellow elder to the elders among you. Later, he says, be shepherds of God's flock. That word translated shepherds is the word from which we get the English word pastor. And then he goes on to say, um, God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers. That's the word that's often translated overseer or bishop, episkopos. So all three of those words are used to describe the same group of people, the same office in the church. So you have elders slash pastors slash overseers. In some places they call them bishops, all describing the same office and the same function. And what separates them from the other office in the church, being deacons, if you look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy and also in Titus, there's one singular uh, differential between the qualifications for elder and the qualifications for deacon. The one difference is elders must be able to teach. They are primarily responsible for oversight of the teaching ministry of the church. And deacons then, being another office in the church that's primarily responsible for leading, for leadership of the service ministry of the congregation. And we see both of those offices described throughout the New Testament. And so Peter here is addressing the first of those offices, people who are elders, people who are capable of teaching, people who are vested with the responsibility of leadership in the congregation. And Paul has written about what these qualifications for elders are. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. I mean, those are, those are, it's a, that's a high bar of qualification for someone to serve as an elder. That's a high bar. 
And anyone who aspires to serve as that should regard it as a high bar. And every church that seeks to lay hands on somebody and appoint them as elders ought to see it as a high bar that's not to be thrown around and just sloshed around for any old person. Those, those words mean a lot, above reproach. Husband of one wife, that means if he's a married man, he has a, a heart that's solely devoted to his one wife. He's sober-minded. He, he's able to think clearly and to rationalize things intelligently. He's self-controlled. His life models for the congregation what it looks like to be self-controlled. He's not wild and out of control in his personal life. He's respected and he's respectable. He's not a drunkard. He's not a violent and hostile and angry sort of a man. He's gentle. He's not quick for a fight. He's not quarrelsome. He's not seduced by a love of money. He, he, he's a, a, a good manager of his own household. He's not a new believer. Even people outside of the, the body of Christ think well of him in general. That's what an elder is. And that's what qualifies a man to be an elder. Titus 1, Paul writes of these similar things. It's to these kinds of people that Peter is writing this text. To the elders among you. To those of you who have been appointed to serve in this regard. To those of you who have met those qualifications. Who are entrusted with the leadership of the congregations in which you serve. It's you who I'm speaking to. Now it may seem to us as we've trekked through 1 Peter. That this is an odd transition from chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. Because he's been talking about consistently, as Pastor Frank mentioned, trials and suffering. And he finishes up chapter 4, like we looked at last week, talking about the fiery trial that's to come uh, on, on the church. Actually, the fiery trial that's part of God's judgment that's coming on the world, but it's going to begin where? In the household of God. Right? That's how he begins. He ends chapter 4. Excuse me. There's a fiery trial that's coming. You're already feeling some of it. This is part of uh, a slice of the overall judgment of God that's coming on the sin of the world. And God's judgment begins in his household. And it seems that as soon as Peter thinks of writing about the judgment of God coming on the world and then coming on the household of God first, his mind begins to go immediately to those who are responsible for leading in the household of God. If the judgment of God is coming on the world and it's coming upon the church first, then there best be godly elders in place in the church for two reasons. Number one, to serve as an example when the trials come and to help those who are entrusted to their care when they're suffering. And so it's a natural transition when you really think about it that Peter's mind goes from those trials to talking to the elders, to reminding them what their charge is and how they're to carry that out so that when the fiery trials come, they'll sustain their leadership and their, their flock won't suffer. And so that's why Peter begins chapter 5 with the word so, or depending on your translation that you have in front of you, it may say therefore. Peter's connecting it to the previous because all of this is getting ready to happen, elders, I need to talk to you about some things that are critically important. And he begins to talk to them about some very important matters by establishing first his platform to speak to them. Before Peter tells them anything, he establishes his own platform. He says, listen, before, I'm going to exhort you on some things, but before I, I exhort you, before I challenge you, before I teach you and call you to faithfulness, I need to establish before you what... What reason do I have or what right do I have or from which platform do I come at you today? And he says in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Peter's going to instruct these elders, but before he does so, he wants to establish right out of the chute 
that he sees himself as one of them. And that's a pretty remarkable thing for Peter to say when you think about who Peter is. Peter is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were only 13 of those. One of them being a really bad example of dying a horrible death. Peter was one of those. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He walked with Christ. He heard the very words of Christ. He witnessed the ministry and the miracles of Jesus. Not only was he one of the twelve, but Peter was one of the inner circle of Jesus, one of the inner circle of three. You remember on occasions Jesus took aside Peter, James, and John, just three, and left the others behind. We think of the transfiguration when Jesus took the three of them up on a mountain. They saw things that the others didn't. Peter was a man really in, in, the, in the kingdom of God, a man of high position. He was the one that Peter, the one that Jesus called a rock. But here at the Outshoot, Peter doesn't come off as a man who's impressed with his own position, does he? He doesn't come off as a man who is, who is exalted and above the people to whom he's speaking. He comes at them with a, with a true humility, a shepherd's heart. He says, listen, before I exhort you, you need to understand, I'm your fellow elder. He doesn't come at them and say, I'm Peter, the great apostle, one of the inner circle of Jesus. I have great wisdom to impart to you. Underlings, listen to me. Right? You've heard people speak that way. You've heard leaders address others that way. But not Peter. He says, I'm your fellow elder. He wants, to understand that what, that he wants them to understand that what he's about to say applies to him just as well as it applies to them. He wants them to understand that he doesn't stand above them, but he stands right beside them and with them. He's not a leader who stands over them and talks down to them. He's a guy who's wrapping their, his arms around him and saying, Brothers, this is something we all need to remember together. And that's an important characteristic of an elder right there. He has a, he's a shepherd's heart and he has a, a humility about him. He doesn't see himself as exalted regardless of what his experience is, regardless of what his education is, regardless of what his popularity is, regardless of what sort of accolades he's achieved in various phases of his life. He never sees himself as over anyone or exalted over anyone spiritually. He sees himself as in the trenches with everybody else. And that's where Peter comes at this. He doesn't use his position to place himself above the elders. He says, I'm one of you. I'm one of you. We're in this together. And then he says, I'm, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Wayne Grudem says this, Here, witnesses of the, witness of the sufferings of Christ bluntly recalls for Peter and for anyone familiar with the details surrounding Christ's crucifixion the most painful episode in Peter's life. For we remember just what kind of witness Peter was. The one whose courage failed and who three times denied that he even knew Christ. Another example of Peter's humility is he dresses these elders. Not only does he say, I'm a fellow elder with you, but when he speaks about being a witness to the sufferings of Christ, that phrase both it does two things. It establishes, on the one hand, his authority to speak, but on the other hand, it illustrates his humility. On the one hand, he says, I am a witness to Christ. I, I did see things that you haven't seen. And that does give me some level of of, of, of platform, if you will, to speak to you about these matters. But right in that same phrase is wrapped up his failure. And he understands and he communicates to these guys, I'm, I'm coming to you as a fellow elder. I do have a platform to speak to you, but I you need to understand I'm not a perfect. I'm not a perfect elder. I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I was a really poor witness in many ways. But Christ has forgiven me. And Christ has restored me. And Christ has commissioned me back to care for his flock. 
And so in these two phrases, a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, Peter puts himself on the level with these other elders, and he does two things. He says, essentially to them, I understand both the privilege and the pain of the work that you do. Because Peter had experienced both. He understands both the privilege of eldership and the pain of it. He understands the privilege of leadership, that God doesn't just call or place any old person in leadership, that there's a privilege associated with that, but he also understands that there's a unique pain that comes with that as well. And Peter's experienced both extremes of that. And so he comes at these elders and says, Elders, I've got some things to say to you, but I don't say them as exalted. I say them as one of your own. And you need to understand that the things I say to you, I haven't always done these things perfectly, and neither will you. But we need to strive together to be exactly what I'm about to say. It's a wonderful platform. If a leader comes at you in that way, you're willing to listen, aren't you? You're willing to listen. And so he says to the elders, here's your calling. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God. The primary calling of any elder is to shepherd God's flock. Now, if you survey the, the scene of Christian ministry and in our culture and our world today, you'll see pastors who do anything and everything all across the board of activities you could possibly imagine. And there's a lot of things that pastors and elders can be involved in. But there is nothing more important than the one thing that Peter calls elders to, and that's shepherding God's flock. It is the primary calling of every leader that God calls and establishes in His church. The primary calling of any Christian leader is to shepherd the flock of God. That's it. Shepherd the flock. Now this theme that Peter uses here, this shepherd theme, it's so familiar to any of Peter's readers because they have the entire Old Testament as a background. Now you and I may not be as familiar with the Old Testament as his readers were, and so we'll familiarize ourselves with this theme a little bit, but you are familiar with at least Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. You said it, I know you're still awake. That's great. The Lord is my shepherd. The psalm, this beautiful psalm that describes the Lord in terms of a, of a shepherd who cares for his people. He leads him to green pastures and to still waters. And he has a rod and a staff that protect them. And he, he comforts them and does all the things that a shepherd does for his sheep. It's a beautiful picture. But it's not the only time that motif is showing up in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and following. Behold, the, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And he his recompense before him, he will tend his flock like a what? Like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those that are with young. Beautiful picture again of the Lord being a shepherd who gathers his people and and gathers them close and cares for them. But when we move over to, to passages like Jeremiah 23, we see the shepherd motif in a different sort of a way. We see a a snapshot of Israel's history, the history of God's people in the Old Testament, where the shepherds that God had entrusted the care of His people to had utterly failed their calling. And they are rebuked in very vivid terms by the Lord. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 1-5. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord... 
the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You've scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Familiar Old Testament passage. And it's a rebuke against the shepherds who were supposed to be shepherding God's flock. And they've utterly abandoned their calling. And God says, because you have woefully failed at shepherding my people, I'm going to deal with you. And I'm going to deal with you in severe sorts of ways. And after I deal with you, then I'm going to come along and do the shepherding that you are supposed to do. I'll never leave my people down. Even if you do, I won't let them down. I'll still take care of them. I'll raise up other shepherds to do the work. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, it's even more vivid. He says that in verses 1 through 15, I'll just pull some excerpts. He says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. That is a stunning rebuke, isn't it? It's a picture of shepherds who do what? They gorge for themselves and they leave their sheep starving. What a stunning indictment for a shepherd. He doesn't end there. He says, the weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you have not sought out, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. These guys are bad news, aren't they? Nothing that a shepherd is supposed to do have these men done. They've cared only for themselves. And when they have dealt with the sheep, they've dealt with them how? With force and harshly. He says again later in that same text, The shepherds have fed themselves and they have not fed my sheep. Behold, I am against the shepherds. Let me just say this at this point. If you're someone who's been called to shepherd any slice of God's people anywhere, anytime, the last thing you want to hear from the Lord is, I'm against you. I'm against you. Because you've abandoned what I've called you to do. And that's what these shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34 and Jeremiah chapter 23 heard. And that is the backdrop against which Peter speaks and with which his hearers or readers would have understood his message. And this shepherd motif. He's, he's already used this back in chapter 2, verse 25. For He says to early in this, in this letter, For you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He's talking to the believers to whom he's writing. He says, you, you used to be straying sheep. He used this image of sheep to describe the people. But you, you strayed at one point, but now you've returned back to the great shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You were lost, but Christ, the great shepherd, found you and he rescued you and he brought you back. And he says to them, listen, shepherd the flock. Elders, leaders in the body of Christ, this is the one thing that if you don't do it, nothing else matters. Shepherd the flock. Primary calling. Shepherd to tend the flock. You know, sheep are are incredibly 
vulnerable creatures. And I suspect there's not a single soul in this room who has any experience being a shepherd of sheep. Is that, is that fair to say? If you, if you have ever shepherded sheep, raise your hand. Okay, all right, a good, good assumption on my part. And because of that, we're Peter's readers. Every one of them would have understood shepherd and sheep and what that looks like and how that feels and all of the imagery that goes with that. We're in modern 2017 America, you know, sheep that's in some other place somewhere else. But sheep, what you need to know about them are they're incredibly vulnerable creatures. They get lost easily. They require somebody tending to them. Otherwise, they will stray off. They're familiar with their immediate surroundings and their immediate pastures. But if they wander out beyond what's immediately familiar to them, they are, even if it's just a few hundred feet, they are lost and they can't find their way back. They get lost and they'll sometimes just go in circles. Somebody has to go get them and bring them back. They get lost easily. They don't have a good sense of direction. They're very easily led. Sheep will follow just about anything or anyone. They're very easily led. In fact, John MacArthur was writing in his commentary about an experience when he went to Australia. His family took a trip to Australia and spent some time with some people who were actual shepherds there. And he talks about the shepherd taking him out into the field with the sheep and describing how this all works and introducing him to one that they call the Judas sheep. The Judas sheep. You know, have you ever heard of a Judas sheep? Do you know what the Judas sheep does? The Judas sheep is responsible for leading the other sheep to the slaughterhouse. Sheep, they'll follow anything. And the Judas sheep knows how to go out and get the others to come follow it. And he leads them right to the place of the slaughter, right down the chute. And they all just go running right behind him. And when he gets to the end of it, the Judas sheep passes through and the trap door springs and the other sheep go down. And the Judas sheep goes back and gets another crowd to come follow him. The Judas sheep. I'd never heard of that either. But it's a vivid, vivid picture, isn't it? And the sheep are easily led. They'll just follow him right on down to their own death. They're easily led. They have to be led to food and water. They don't don't naturally know how to forage and find that stuff for themselves. Somebody has to get them there to show them where the food is. They'll eat things they ought not eat. They'll get sick and they'll die. Someone has to tend to them. They're easily injured, very easily injured. They fall and get injured. When they're, uh, when, when they're, they're, they're full of the, the, the wool and they're big and heavy on the top, they can fall over and not get themselves up, falling and they can't get up. Somebody has to help them. And they don't have that little button to push. And beyond all of that, sheep have no natural defenses, right? I mean, there's never been a, a, a superhero named after a sheep, right? Sheep man or anything like that, because they have no natural defenses. They can't bite. They don't kick. They don't do anything. They are incredibly vulnerable. I mean, God's creatures that He's created in this world are remarkable. I mean, He's created some remarkable creatures with some remarkable defense systems. I saw a video this week of a spider that sits on top of the water and he spits poison and knocks things out of the air. That's crazy, isn't it? Have you ever heard of the bombardier beetle? That is a crazy creature, too. It's a little beetle bug who on the back end of that beetle bug, on his keister, Pastor Frank, he has, if you were here first Wednesday, you get that joke. Um, he has two little glands, and they secrete these two different chemicals. And when those two chemicals hit, you know what they do? They blow up. They make a little explosion. So the bombardier beetle can literally blow up predators. The spider comes along, and the bombardier beetle, kaboom! The spider goes away. That's crazy, isn't it? Sheep can't spit poison. They have no explosions that they make to fend off predators. They can't bite. They can't run fast. They're not particularly 
uh, intelligent in the way of escape. They're incredibly vulnerable. If there's no shepherd guarding the sheep, they are sitting ducks, sitting sheep. Maybe we should change the phrase. They die. If they wander away from the shepherd and from the fold, they are easy dinner for any predator. They have no natural defenses. They can't defend themselves. They get lost easily. They're easily led. They have to be led. Sheep without a shepherd are hopelessly vulnerable and utterly lost. They just don't live. They just don't live. And so the illustration here is simple. Peter is taking a a physical thing that everybody understood, and he's making a spiritual point. The point is this. God's people spiritually are like sheep. They're vulnerable. They're prone to wander. They get injured and need somebody to help heal them. They need somebody to, to feed and nourish them. They oftentimes will follow someone that will lead them astray, and they need somebody to chase after them and rescue them and bring them back before they get to the slaughter. And God's elders are the people He's called to shepherd them. It's a beautiful illustration of what elders do. And what the primary calling of an elder is to shepherd the flock. In the same way that sheep are physically vulnerable, God's people are spiritually vulnerable, and they need a shepherd just as much as an actual pen of sheep needs a shepherd. But most importantly, they need to be fed and they need to be nourished. If you don't feed sheep, they die, and none of the other stuff you do for them matters. In the body of Christ... The primary calling of the shepherd is to feed and nourish the sheep. If he doesn't do that, if he doesn't do that, he's a worthless shepherd. No matter what else he does. No matter how popular he is. If he doesn't feed his sheep. And the food for sheep is the word of God. The Bible makes that clear. An elder who either cannot or does not feed his sheep is a worthless elder. It's a worthless one. He'll end up leading a bunch of weak, vulnerable, wandering sheep who get picked off easily. And this is an epidemic problem in the American church. Church leaders who are established as elders who do not feed their sheep. They do everything else in the world. They entertain them. They provide vision for them. They come up with great business models to operate the business of the church. They come up with all sorts of programs. They have cool and edgy productions. They do all sorts of other things that impress and wow people. But when you boil it all down at the end of the day, they do not feed the sheep the Word of God. And they're worthless. What good is a shepherd who doesn't feed a sheep? I hear regularly when I talk to guests out in the Welcome Center after church on Sunday morning, we've been visiting churches all the time. And we have a hard time finding anybody that's teaching the Bible. That blows me away. I don't go anywhere else except here on Sundays. So I don't know what anyone else really is doing except what you can see online. But it's shocking to me that people can move into a city and go from church to church to church. And at the end of the day, they say, I can't find anybody that's feeding the sheep. I can't find a pastor who will feed me God's Word. So all sorts of other things, but that was noticeably absent. Turn on the TV, go online, and you see the epidemic of this. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care how popular a church is, I don't care how big a church is, I don't care what anybody else thinks of a church, if you go to that place and you look with your own eyes and listen with your own ears and you observe elders who do not feed and nourish their sheep on the Word of God, you need to get out of there as fast as you can get. And get somewhere where shepherds feed their flock. Because that's a place where you will starve and wither and die spiritually perhaps being entertained all the way to your death. Another thing to notice here, shepherds must always remember that it's God's flock that they shepherd. We're responsible to shepherd the flock, but it's not our flock, it's God's flock. 
You see that? Shepherd the flock of God. Elders are, are, not, are not independent agents who are responsible for their own flocks. The picture here is God is the great shepherd of all of His people. He slices off little pieces of His kingdom in a little particular place, and He appoints under-shepherds to carry out that responsibility for Him over that group, to shepherd His flock in that place. So the calling on my life and on Pastor Frank's life and on John Butt's life and on Josh Dickard's life and on um, Roger Parker's life and on Steve Park's life, we're called to, to be shepherds of this flock of God. You belong to the Lord. You don't belong to me. You're not my church. You're God's church. I'm His under-shepherd responsible for shepherding you. And I'm accountable to Him for how I do that, as we all are. You know, the responsibility is the same if you're leading in God's flock anywhere. If you've got some small class that the Lord has appointed you over, and you're a shepherd for that class, you're, you're, it's not your class, it's God's class, and He's called you to be responsible for caring for them and nourishing them and feeding them. And you give an account to the Lord for how you serve Him in that way. You either hear at the end of it, Well done, faithful servant. Thank you for shepherding my flock. Or you hear, I'm against you. One way or the other, it's God's flock. It's not our own. You heard in Ezekiel 34, we read that passage, how many times God, when He was just excoriating those elders or those shepherds, how many times He said, My sheep? You haven't done this. My sheep. My sheep are scattered. My sheep have become a prey. My sheep have become food for wild beasts. You've not fed my sheep. The point is, they're God's sheep, and the shepherds have been derelict in their duties of caring for God's precious sheep. Every elder, every leader needs to remember that the people who are entrusted to our care do not belong to us and they're not to be used for our own ends. They're God's sheep. They're to be used for His own ends. Anytime you go to a place where you see a pastor or a group of elders who are exalting themselves and building a ministry around themselves and you get the impression that the church is about them and you get the impression that people serve simply uh, toward the needs and the ambitions of the pastor and people are called to serve and exalt and promote the pastor, another place you need to get get out of as fast as you can. Whenever you get the impression that the church is about him, and it's his church, and it's all about him or them, get out. Because it's never about him or them. It's always about the Lord. It's the Lord's church. And a faithful shepherd always makes that clear. I saw a, a picture of a coloring sheet from a church. Uh, in the United States not too long ago that was made for the children of the church, a very large mega church. And it was a cartoon picture for the children to, to color. And it was, it was a cartoon of the pastor of that particular church, a church that has a singular leadership sort of a deal. And, and it was, the title was Unity, and it was about unity. And at the, bottom of the, at the bottom of the picture, do I have that picture up there at the bottom of that, JP? You may not be able to read it. I blanked out the church name. Such and such church is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen. We will protect our unity in supporting his vision. This is what's taught to the kids. Color Pastor Stephen. We're going to unify around his vision. I can assure you, at Grace on the Ashley, there will never be a cartoon of Pastor Frank or Pastor Greg that we know anything about. Yeah, there may be some on bulletin somewhere, but that's a different thing altogether. Never intentionally will it be. The point is, you know, I don't want to bang on somebody else, but the point is, what does that communicate to kids? It communicates that the church is about the pastor, and that it's all about supporting him and his vision. And that's never what a church is about. It's God's flock. It's always about the Lord. It's never about the person 
who's shepherding. And so that's what Peter is saying to these guys. You're responsible. Shepherd, shepherd God's flock. You take care of God's flock. Feed them God's Word. How are they to do that? Well, that's what the rest of the passage is really about. And these are so obvious that I'm not going to belabor the point. I'm going to give you a couple of examples and move our way through in verses 2 and 3. You're to shepherd God's flock, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Simple contrast that he gives us. The first is this. The way that you're to go about your shepherding, well, whoever you're shepherding in God's flock, is not under compulsion, but willingly. Well, that seems pretty obvious, right? Or maybe not so much. It comes out the motive. It's challenging the elders. Why is it that you do what you do? Are you shepherding God's flock because you feel obligated to? Or are you doing it because you willingly desire to serve God's people? There are a lot of people serving in God's flock who are doing so out of an obligation, not because their heart is in it, not because they love the Lord or love the people that they're called to minister to, not because they're energized about the ministry that God's given to them, but because they feel some sense of obligation. Chuck Swindoll lists some reasons why someone might do that. He talks about external pressures. Sometimes people serve in leadership because people from the outside have pressured them to do so and they want to save face so they feel obligated to just do it because there's been external pressure but their heart's not in it they're doing it out of obligation under compulsion not willingly others particularly in pastoral ministry can feel a career pressure men get paid to do pastoral ministry sometimes and sometimes people get into that track and their heart's not in it They don't have a passion for it, but they feel obligated because it's now the way that they make their living and it's now they've locked into this track and they don't know what else to do, so they just keep doing what they're doing out of a sense of compulsion, out of a sense of obligation, not willingly. And there are a multitude of other reasons that he lists as well. But regardless of the reason or the source, the point is when we serve the Lord and shepherd His people, it it must always be willingly, joyfully. Willingly and joyfully, not under compulsion. We don't serve the Lord because we have to. We serve the Lord because we want to. And a person who doesn't want to shouldn't be serving. Now, there's a caveat to this. That doesn't mean the ministry is always fun. And every task that we go about in our shepherding is always a joy and always pleasant. And we're always in the right mood to do it, right? If we quit every time we weren't in a good mood to do what God's called us to do, or we quit every time, you know, we didn't feel like doing it, um, We'd be quitting all the time. That's not the point he's trying to make. All ministry has its drudgery, and it has its hard points and its difficult moments. The point here is not that. The point here is what is the main motivation of the heart of the shepherd? Is the main motivation that I'm doing this because I feel obligated, or is the main motive that I'm doing this because I want to be here serving the Lord and shepherding His people? And we always have to ask our question, whether we're elders or whether we're people who serve in some other way, what motivates us? Am I doing what I do because I have to, or am I doing it because I want to? If we're doing it because we have to, we need to get out of it graciously. second thing he says is not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And boy, that's so obvious, right? A a faithful elder is motivated not by what they can get, but by what they can give. The landscape of the Christian church has historically been just marked with thousands and thousands of leaders who've been exposed as shepherds who were in it for what they could get rather than what they could give. read a few articles just this week. I mean, New York City pastor caught stealing money from his church offering nine times. Claims he wasn't paid enough. It's one way to solve it. 
Oddly enough, by the way, I'm not going to read you this whole article because our time is about up, but the guy's still serving in the church. Caught on video. They found out because he was gone for a few weeks, and all of a sudden the offerings tripled. That was January 6, 2016. Just a few years back, if you want it closer to home, Berkeley County pastor gets 90 days for stealing church money. $60,000 from his church. Jail for three months. Ordered to repay the money. This, this is an article from the Associated Press, not from a Christian source. Here's the headline. The biggest scam of all. Pastor Creflo Dollar will get his $65 million luxury jet. That's what every pastor needs. $65 million luxury jet to go along with your multiple Rolls Royces and multiple multi-million dollar mansions. Of course, if you listen uh, to what the pastor says, you know, he needs that. Again, you're wise people. You're smart sheep. You know when somebody's in it for the money and when they're in it because of what they have to give. You can tell when a leader is out to get something and when they're out to give something. You can tell when they're in it for what they can extract from you rather than what they have to offer to shepherd you as a sheep and a, a shepherd. Shameful gain. Or The point is this. What motivates a faithful elder is he's eager to give and he doesn't desire to get. And it's a question that we always have to be asking ourselves as elders. What is it that motivates us? In what ways are we, are we seeking to get from the people rather than from giving? And it's not always just about money. Shameful gain includes all sorts of things. It can include power. It can include prestige. It can include all sorts of other things that are, that are not monetary. There's an article that I read this week. It's an article written by five pastors called, called we were seduced by power. Let me just give you a quick excerpt. And I admire these men for writing this. This is a confession of a pastor. He says, This is no salacious story to tell, no tale of moral failure, at least not as it's usually defined. I'm repenting of selfish ambition, prideful autonomy, and manipulative leadership. That's not to say that I didn't have a true spirit-led calling and longing for ministry. I desired to faithfully preach Christ crucified and to feed Christ's sheep. Yet I didn't have a holy heart. Deep within me, woven within the spirit-given affection for God's kingdom work, I harbored desires for significance, for recognition, for acclaim, for notoriety. I wanted power. God took me on a journey into the truth of my heart's desires, using a failure to expose my fleshliness. God unveiled how pervasive these temptations were in every corner and crevice of my life. But I also discovered how pervasive these temptations are for all pastors and how little we talk about them. I've embraced a worldly form of power to control and in doing so have viewed God's people as a resource or tool to get things done. I genuinely desired kingdom-oriented goals, but I seek to achieve these goals by manipulating other people. Honest words from an honest pastor who understands the temptation that every shepherd has to seek what they can gain rather than what they can give. And that temptation is at every elder and every pastor, and it's at every leader at every level of church leadership. And we always must be asking ourselves in the mirror, self, what are you, at, what are you after with this? What is it that you hope to get out of this? 
Are you really out of the, Are you really into this because of what you have to give and because you love people? Are you are you are there secret desires in your heart that you want that power, you want prestige, you want some sort of material thing that you can get in return? You want the adulation, you want the respect, whatever. We're not to be after shameful gain. We're to go after it eagerly. And the last thing he says is this, not domineering, but being an example. Not domineering. Well, you know what domineering is. Domineering leader is someone who's harsh, who uses force to motivate people to do what he wants them to do, who, who berates them, belittles them, talks over them, manipulates their emotions and their feelings to get them to do what he wants. He's not gentle. He's not kind. He's not loving. He's harsh. That's what a domineering leader does. Not to be that kind of a leader. Instead, he says, we're to lead by an example. Instead of being a a leader who domineers harshly over people, we're to be the kind that lives a life that sets an example. Lives a life that just sets an example that others can look at. Not a perfect example. Peter's already established his, his track record isn't perfect. But he lives a life that people can look at and say, you know, that's the kind of person I'd like to follow because I believe they know the Lord and I believe they love the Lord and I believe they're walking with the Lord and I want to live, love the Lord and walk with the Lord like that person is living. That's the kind of person a shepherd is to be. He lives a life that's an example. That's why that story of John Rogers last week that Pastor Frank mentioned is so important. A pastor who's marched through the middle of town with his congregation on the sides of the roads cheering him on as he marches to the stake to be burned. He's a pastor who understands what it is to set an example of faithfulness because people are watching. And it's a congregation who understands what a faithful shepherd setting an example looks like and encourages that. I talked recently to a a chaplain who was deployed when the war in Afghanistan first began. He was with the Marine Division that went in first to a very hostile environment. And he was responsible for a very large Marine division, and there was only one other chaplain assigned to help him. I was asking him what that was like, just because as a young chaplain, I want to know what those environments are like. And he was talking about the other chaplain that was assigned with him. He was telling me he had extra responsibility because the other chaplain that was assigned to that particular division, when it came time for the Marines to go out on patrol, he refused to go out with them. He was terrified. He was afraid. He would never go outside the wire with his Marines. And so the chaplain I was talking to had to go with all of them because the other guy wouldn't go. Now, we can all understand that fear, right? Every one of us can. But when God calls you to be a leader, a spiritual leader, and you have things to say, your life has to be an example. Otherwise, the words that you say have no power and authority. Can you imagine that chaplain sitting in a chapel and preaching to those Marines the next Sunday who look at him and know that he's not willing to go where they go and to care for them where they need care? Do you think his message matters? No, Marines have enough courtesy not to show up. The same is true of shepherds that God calls in other venues. Our life has to set an example that people see, that we're willing to love them and go where they go, care for their needs where they have needs. And then what we have to say makes a difference as it relates to God's Word and their lives. That's what faithful shepherds look like. They're called to shepherd God's flock. And they're called to do it in ways that are not for their own selfish gain. In ways that that are an example for people to live by. And they're to do it in such a way that they do it willingly. So what about you? What about the place where you serve? 
What about the slice of God's kingdom that you've been assigned to, to shepherd as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd? Is that what your service looks like? Do you do it willingly? Do you do it because you want to, not because you have to? When you get up and get ready to go do that thing, do you, do you go there with an eagerness and a joy because you look forward to serving the Lord and you look forward to caring for His people? Or, or do you find yourself going, Oh, man, i got to go do that again. One time, that's a bad day. A month of those days, and all of a sudden we're not doing it willingly. We're doing it under compulsion. What about the other categories? Do we do our, do we do our work for what we can get or for what we have to give? What we have to give? We have to search our heart for these things. And how do we treat the people? How do we treat the sheep that God's entrusted to our care? Are we gentle? Are we kind? Are we loving and gracious toward them? Or do we manipulate them and use force to try and get them to do what we want them to do? Domineering. I've talked to some people in this very congregation who've told me stories of being in churches where the pastor was domineering, manipulative, using them for his own means. We don't ever want to be those kind of... The Lord says, I'm against that kind of a shepherd. And we should be too. I pray that the Lord would help each of us, starting with me, and trickling down to every other person in this flock who's responsible for shepherding anyone anywhere related to this church, that those would be the kinds of shepherds that we are. And I would pray that you as a congregation who are not in those roles will hold every one of us accountable to those criteria. If you ever see me coming at you in a way that's domineering, I expect you to pull me aside lovingly, graciously. Not, hey, you jerk, quit it. But say, Pastor, you know, you came on strong. I felt like you were harsh. I need that in my life. Every shepherd needs that in this life or her life. If you ever see that my motives are in suspect, that it looks like I'm after something for myself rather than your good, that's something else that you need to hold me accountable to and every other shepherd and every elder in this church. You have that responsibility as a congregation. You deserve that kind of leadership from the Lord. And we deserve to be that kind of a leader. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for the elders who are in this room right now, among whom I stand. The calling you've placed on our life is incredible, and none of us are worthy for the calling. None of us. We are only effective to the degree that you give us the grace to serve, that you cover our weaknesses and shine your strength through us. None of us have the intellect necessary. None of us have the faithfulness necessary. None of us have the talent necessary. We are utterly dependent upon your grace. And every one of these negative characteristics that Peter warns against, every one of us is tempted to those things in some way, shape, or form at some point. And so I pray for myself and for my fellow elders that you would guard our hearts against such things, that you would make us shepherds who shepherd the flock here, shepherds who do it willingly and joyfully, shepherds who are kind and loving and gracious, shepherds who are out for the good of the sheep and not for our own gain. And Father, I pray for every leader who's a part of the responsibility structure here in this congregation over children, over senior citizens, over any little slice of your shepherd, of your sheep. And every one of us would take to heart these words and challenge our own selves to serve you faithfully in these ways. Father, I pray for our congregation, for the sheep that you've entrusted to our care. 
that we would, Lord, know their needs and understand them and love them and care for them in Your place because they are Yours. And they're Your precious creations, every one of them. We regard them as such. Father, help us to lead and serve You well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You need someone to pray with you, or 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 someone to pray with you.